My name is Justin LeClure, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And this week, I hope you're ready to rock! Oh man, we are talking about the most dangerous band in the world. The Rolling Stones. Now, what is your relationship with the Rolling Stones, Will? I have the same relationship to the Rolling Stones that, like, anybody in the world who doesn't really consider themselves a fan of the Rolling Stones has. Which is that, like, their music is inescapable. I have heard Start Me Up... 500 million times in my life. Have you ever tried to go and like listen to their albums that people say are the best? I've tried many times over the years, but they're just like a weird barrier keeping me from going like, yeah, this is music that I like. I can get into. Maybe I'm not dangerous enough because I went through that phase of the Beatles when I was a teenager where you just listen to the Beatles all the time because you're like, oh yeah, this is great. But I never, that never happened with the Rolling Stones for me. I've definitely always liked the Beatles more than the Rolling Stones. And I have like, there have been times when I've listened to Rolling Stones albums, uh, like, you know, Sticky Fingers or Exile on Main Street, stuff like that. I don't know. For me, and hardcore serious Rolling Stones fans can yell at me if they want for this. That's okay. There gets to be a sort of sameness to their music after a while, like small doses for me, I find. Um, but hey, listen, I'm not a music critic. We're here to talk about the cinema, and we've chosen the Rolling Stones as a subject this week because... I think they're an interesting case. Uh, They're not like Elvis or the Beatles, where they had a bunch of, like, fiction movies that they starred in. I mean, Mick Jagger did. Mick Jagger tried to make himself a career uh, as an actor. But the Rolling Stones as a group, you never got that, like, you know, pop, look, they're fun people, like Richard Lester director to Hard Day's Night style of film. From the get-go, it was always them. And because that's what audiences want to see. Despite the fact that like movies per se were never really a part of their, I guess, business model or, or not in the same way that it was for the Beatles, there have been many Rolling Stones movies, documentaries and concert films. And it's amazing the level and the number of directors they've worked with, great filmmakers, Jean-Luc Godard, Martin Scorsese, Hal Ashby, Robert Frank, and the Maisels brothers, most notably. I was looking through their filmography wondering, like, how did they work with so many great filmmakers? Were they just open to it? Was their management open to it? Like, how did it all just come together like this? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure. I think some of it has to do with the fact that, like, they are you know, one of the most famous and lucrative bands of all time. And so when they decide, let's make a concert movie, they're going to get some of the most famous and lucrative directors ever to do it. So like Martin Scorsese, for instance. Mick Jagger, he appeared in Performance, and he appeared in Fitzcarraldo. I mean, he was supposed to be, but uh, due to the schedule getting screwed up, he wasn't able to actually appear in it. Can you imagine if he did, he was like a major character in Fitzcarraldo? Would that have changed his career? Or it would have probably just been the same, I think. I mean, it only would have worked if uh, Jason Robards was Fitzcarraldo, because like the two of the, like if, if Mick Jagger and Klaus Kinski were together. I think that would have been just a little bit too much for the screen to handle. And so we watched a bunch of their big documentaries. Let's take them chronologically, I feel, because I think it's an interesting pathway of how we get to the last one that we watched, Shine a Light. So I will say that it's remarkable with these documentaries how they are like really historic document. They are, they chronicle history. They're an amazing kind of chronicle of the second half of the 20th century. And they are also a part of history. Gimme Shelter particularly. I'll mention that I revisited 
the, the 1968 film Sympathy for the Devil this week. Ah, yes. So Sympathy for the Devil is a beautiful looking film. And when you hear about it, theoretically, you're like, oh, wow, that sounds really daring, which is essentially you watch the Rolling Stones craft the song Sympathy for the Devil in studio in these long dolly takes. But then you get to the other half of the movie, which is Jean-Luc Godard wanking off on screen. Well, it was Jean-Luc Godard's first British film. It's kind of a transition film between his classical 60s period and the more agitprop stuff he was making in the 70s. Uh, It's amazing that he and uh, Tony Richardson happened to be there on the day they were doing Sympathy for the Devil. Like, uh, you see these long, long, unbroken takes of them doing multiple recordings of the song, and you see how the song comes together. You see the creative process unfold. Like, it starts as sort of a low-key, bluesy song, and it eventually becomes the samba-inflected song that it is now. And one of the things I love about these scenes is the fact that they're kind of boring. You sit there, and like you hear the song a bunch of times, and art-making in this movie is like work. There are all these Rolling Stones concert films where it's just like incredible energy, uh, incredible performance. And in this one, they're experimenting. They're trying stuff. They're putting things in, taking things out, building it brick by brick. And Mick Jagger is sitting down for fuck's sake. It's an amazing document about the creative process. And what's even more amazing is that it led to a song that became like a defining one as opposed to some shitty like b-side that nobody talks about anymore and i understand from fans of the rolling stones that when you watch this footage like you can you can see like the band's dynamic so like for instance brian jones one of the founding members he was sort of on the outs with the, the band at this point he would die a year later uh he, he was drowned while he was on drugs And you can see that he has a diminished role during these recording sessions, sort of on the side doing, you know, kind of a not very important acoustic part of the song. You know, you can see kind of uh, a side side of Keith Richards, a more kind of determined, uh, focused side of Keith Richards that you don't normally associate with his public image. Um, And then there is the political stuff in the film. I mean, we don't need to spend too much time on it because it's it's bad. (laughs) Yeah, I do think it's bad. And I don't think... Godard has really thought through like what the relationship is between like the Rolling Stone stuff and the messages he's delivering. There's a series of surreal tableaus with like the Black Panthers with Eve democracy, the human embodiment of democracy being interviewed. There's a strange, long, very tiresome scene at a pornographic bookstore where the owner is reading from Mein Kampf and there are two Maoists who are tied up. Get me away from this philosophy major at the party. I don't want to talk to him anymore. <laughs> I think the Black Panther stuff is pretty offensive. Godard doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. Yeah, uh, but you're right. Let's not let's not linger too long on this. It's an interesting film. It's worth seeing for the stuff that's worth seeing. But then let's move on to, I think, their most famous documentary, Gimme Shelter. This is by Albert and David Maisels, as well as Charlotte Zwerin. The Maisels brothers are, of course, the most famous direct cinema documentarians, cinema verite filmmakers. The philosophy of that being that they're just there to record, right? You know, they don't intervene. They're not Michael Moore. Uh, they've just got their camera and they're they're chronicling things as they happen. And I think we'll we'll get into that a little more in a sec. But this chronicles the famous Altamont Free Concert, which was held in California on December 6, 1969. It was 
intended as a kind of spiritual sequel to Woodstock, but it's gone down in the popular imagination as being the concert that ended the 60s, along with the Manson murders. What happened at this concert? Well, somebody got stabbed (laughs) during the concert by the Hells Angels who were hired as security. The person died, and that's what the whole documentary kind of centers around. And for people that may have not have seen it, and I would recommend it, because when you hear the kind of a blow line for it, you're like, oh, that sounds like a bummer. And it's like, does it build to this? Is it a concert film? It's not really a concert film. The whole thing is structured around this murder from the get-go like they know that the audience knows that's what it's building to and the way that they do it is by having the rolling stones themselves watch an edit of the documentary and react to it as it's playing so you get the kind of emotional connection by introducing this meta element of the rolling stones who were there when it happened but actually didn't see it because they were involved in their own thing reacting to the build-up and finally the event of someone getting stabbed which was captured on camera. It's masterfully structured. There's a sense of doom surrounding the concert from the beginning in the organizing of it, in the vibe of the attendees as they're shuffling in. You see that there's an enormous amount of drug use in the audience. Throughout, audience members are like trying to crash the stage. In fact, we see a footage of another concert, a Madison Square Garden concert with the Stones from earlier, which has kind of a similar atmosphere in a way, like like people are crashing the stage on that. So I saw a documentary on the Rolling Stones that just kind of chronicled their uh, musical history up until the 1980s, where if the documentary is any indication, I think they died after that. I don't know. Did they keep going? They might as well have, in my opinion, but go ahead. They essentially could not finish a concert anytime. The stage would be crashed every single time. So like this happening at the free concert is not an anomaly. It's something that happened all the time. It's just this particular moment is when it went really bad. Now, I've always considered this to be one of the best documentaries of all time. I still think it's very, very, very good. Uh, Great, even. And yet I'm leaving it with like a weird, a weird ambivalence that I haven't had before that I'm hoping like maybe we can talk through. Because This movie has gone down in the popular imagination as being exhibit A in why the 60s failed. Like Woodstock is this beautiful moment of peace, love, and music, and Altamont is where we all had to finally grow up and settle in for uh, the next 50 years of imperialism and neoliberalism, right? I mean, here's the issue with saying something like that. It's a really clean cut way to approach it. Do you know why it feels like the end of the 60s? Because the directors decided to structure the movie around that idea. Like, there's a Woodstock documentary that looks like, oh, it's the end of the hippie movement because you just see shitty, zonked out people the entire time having a miserable time, which is what you see in Gimme Shelter. While uh, Gimme Shelter, you just see those people. That's what the film focuses on. You see close-ups of people being miserable, a.k.a. every giant concert experience that I've ever had. So I think I think this is maybe at the root of my my slight negative feeling, which I respect the movie. I think this is the movie's point of view, and I think it articulates the point of view very well, and I think I think there's merit to the point of view. But, like, the, the Maisel's brothers do have a point of view, okay? That's what I'm saying. Like, this film often gets categorized as direct cinema. Right. Right? Which, I mean, the concept, when I hear it, it's like, oh, you know, it's just capturing things in the moment. That's not what this documentary is. It's not. That's a lie. It has a thesis. A thesis and a point of view, and it wants to underline that thesis. Not just 
from the fact that like the Rolling Stones themselves are commenting on it, but the way that it's structured and edited is to get you to that point. The film ends with like the hippies walking through as the sun rises, as if to literally underline, it's a new day, things have changed. Like it's not a subtle film. So anyway, I do think it's a great movie and I think it's like riveting to watch. Oh, I think so too. I think it's emotional. I think it makes its impact very well. I mean, the film ends with a freeze frame that like zooms in on Mick Jagger's face. Like cinema direct my Ass. By the way, what do you think of those scenes of the Rolling Stones and Mick Jagger in particular watching this footage? They're kind of like stone-faced in a way throughout a lot of it, and I think the movie invites you to project whatever you want onto it. I think that the issue I have with those scenes is, like all the stuff in the film, it's been doctored to reach a certain emotional point. Like, you see the screen that they're watching, and the image has been superimposed on that screen. So, like, they're commenting on stuff that the viewer is not seeing. It's just to get the reaction, you know, to make the story fit the way they want it to fit. I think I would actually prefer the movie if it didn't have that stuff. If it if it was just... I mean, and, okay, now I'm maybe contradicting myself because earlier on I said I wanted the movie to own up to the fact that it had a point of view more than it, more than it does. But and, and these are the scenes... These are, like, the Brechtian scenes where we realize the documentary is a construct... So I don't know. Like to show the Rolling Stones and try to get like an emotional reaction out of them is almost unfair, I feel. <laughs> Even though the documentary like tries to paint a picture as well. It's like, look at all these suits that wanted to force this concert through, even though like organizers didn't want to do it. Also, what does it prove to have the Rolling Stones watch the footage? Like, are we supposed to, is there supposed to be some catharsis where like they look at it and are like, wow, we really are naughty boys, aren't we? Hmm. <laughs> yes. There really are consequences to this devil music we the play. The whole image that their agents and and managers have tried to make their entire career like the anti-Beatles that like, oh, these guys, they're not pretty like the Beatles, but they're sexy in a different way. I mean, uh, the next documentary we can talk about, uh, Cocksucker Blues, that is like about the Rolling Stones. It's not really like a concert film, even less so than I think Gimme Shelter is. Yeah, this is uh, notorious for the fact that it was suppressed. Uh, Robert Frank, the great experimental filmmaker, directed it. Uh, And when the Rolling Stones saw it, they did everything they could to prevent it from being released, including take him to court. And there was a very bizarre legal ruling where the movie apparently, and Robert Frank has died recently, so I'm not quite sure what the status of it is now. But for many years, the movie could play up to four times a year in public with Robert Frank in attendance in the building. That Oh, yeah, because it played a TIFF and he was in attendance at the building. But that thing has been on bootleg circuits forever. Like, it's not like completely missing. Supposedly, an oft-repeated quote that Mick Jagger said to Uh, Robert Frank was. It's a good film, Robert, but if it ever shows in America, we'll never be allowed in the country again. I mean, here's the thing. The documentary essentially shows that rock stars do a lot of drugs and fuck a lot. Oh, it's so shocking. (laughs) I know. This movie chronicles the Stones' 1972 tour of the United States, which was the first time they toured the country since Altamont. And I like this movie a lot. I think it's beautiful in its way. It is a very monotonous documentary. It's a very repetitive documentary because it is all scenes of them in hotel rooms and dressing rooms. 
and a plane in one memorable scene and the hotel rooms all seem to remain the same if you ever wanted to be dissuaded from being a rock star watch this documentary because like this is the life of these people hotel rooms having sex all the time and it, miserably it seems almost as if like i guess i gotta have sex this is what i do i'm a rock star and every now and then they play a show i think the defining moment in this movie at least for me is when mick jagger throws a tv out the sorry keith richards throws a tv out the window and it's like the build-up to this scene it takes so long to play out because we see uh uh, Keith and one of the roadies like like unhooking the TV dragging it out to the balcony like they're, they're looking over the balcony and they're like okay is it all clear and then they throw the TV off the balcony and then they, they look at the camera like huh and it's like well we're the Rolling Stones what are we gonna do yeah we gotta do this like it'll make the news or something like that gotta keep ourselves in the public consciousness watching a documentary like this especially the other thing that we watch it makes me think of like who are the Rolling Stones? Like, who do they view themselves as people? What do they do in their spare time? And how do they define themselves as, you know, doing something that has value to them? Because when you play, like, the rock show over and over and over again, you get the adulation of the fans. There's 100,000 people in the audience. But a lot of these documentaries, you see them on stage, and it's just blackness in front of them. I try to imagine, like, what it is being on stage doing the same thing every night to this big anonymous crowd you hear them screaming and it's just like are they enjoying this am i getting a thrill out of it is there any value to this is it like someone who's addicted to something that like just to feel normal they have to reach this level which would make sense why they keep doing this over and over again You're right it must be a very disorienting life because yeah they play into a pitch black void and then they go to a dressing room and then they get carted to a hotel room they never like they never see the outside world at one point in, the, in this documentary, like, we hear that they're in Indiana, and it's like, wait, this is happening in Indiana? <laughs> all of this, all of this decadence and depravity? Well, I mean, it follows them wherever they go, and because they have it all the time, it obviously has no meaning, right? It must be so boring for them, you know? They're also surrounded by these fucking hangers-on. All, the, all these, like, asshole, like, roadies and... Uh, you know, just just people who are on the tour bus for some reason who who get to fuck groupies because they know the Rolling Stones and also celebrities who pop in every now and then. So like we see Andy Warhol, we see Terry Southern, Terry Southern, like high out of his mind, like snorting. Coke. Oh, my God. <laughs> Truman Capote. Uh, women and men are nude all over the place. You see people uh, have sex in this. You see people shoot heroin in this. It's essentially everything that, you know, someone who knows what a rock star does. That's what rock stars do. But you have it on screen now. By the way, I think the reason that this movie, why that legal ruling was allowed was because Robert Frank apparently staged the scene on the airplane, which is one of the most notorious scenes in the movie where like the Rolling Stones are in the front cabin and then in the back cabin, some roadies are fucking the groupies and one of them is like forcibly like taking her clothes off or something like that. And they were able to prove that was staged. I mean, look, it would have happened regardless. Probably has happened before and since then. Frank is there basically just being like, can you just do this for me right now? Cause you're going to do it anyway. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the title card at the beginning of the version that I watched says, 
because all of these events are fictitious and anyone that it may represent uh, is just a coincidence. So, you know, yeah, complete fiction. The Rolling Stones never do any of this kind of stuff or live this miserable purgatory <laughs> where they have what seemingly from the outside looks like the most fun life, but is just pure misery the entire time. Well, I'll tell you what is complete fiction. It's 2008's Shine a Light, directed by Martin Scorsese. Holy shit. What a movie this is. Two hours. Oh my God, I almost died. So this is a concert film directed by Marty Scorsese, our favorite of the Important Cinema Club and anyone who loves movies. I mean, he did probably one of the most famous uh, concert films, which is The Last Waltz, the final big performance of the band and miscellaneous stars, including Neil Young, with a Coke rock dangling from his nose, which had to be altered and drawn over for theatrical release. And this is him. I, I wonder what was his relationship with the Rolling Stones before this? They had done stuff before. He had made a music video for them, right? Also, the Rolling Stones, their music is in a lot of his movies, like Gimme Shelter, particularly. <laughs> Yeah, all over. And so I remember the trailer of this movie and I had never seen it because the trailer is just Marty arguing with Mick Jagger about how the thing should be set up. And I was hoping it was going to be more of that. But no, this is like 85% a concert Yeah, film. it takes place in, I think, 2006 or 2007 at the Beacon Theater in New York. It's part of the world tour that the Stones, who by this point are in their, are in their 60s, we're doing uh you see them do all their famous songs all the songs you know and love we gotta set some context too this is for bill clinton's birthday yes so bill clinton introduces it and he says i always dreamed of opening for the rolling stones and it's like if bill clinton is introducing your act like it's over (laughs) yeah it's over like come on i mean i think you probably cussed at bill clinton being like yeah like tapping his hands to the rolling stones now my memory of this movie which i had not seen since it came out and which i did not enjoy when it came out is that like the rolling stones are old and pathetic and like it's it's tough to watch these guys in their 60s like do a disneyland version of who they were in 1972 like mick old still doing the dancing and on this viewing, I realized I didn't even like the filmmaking no. either. Like, there's a big buildup where, like, the conflict between Jagger and Scorsese and Scorsese wanting perfection and his assistants being like, we need the set list to get this right. You know, we need to get the the best shot when the movie opens. And then when the concert finally starts, it's like the most generic made-for-TV coverage that you could ever get for a concert. Especially seeing it the same week that I saw Cocksucker Blues and Gimme Shelter, where the concert footage is so raw and there's so much energy. And, like, it's not perfectly filmed either. You know, they're getting shots where they can get shots. But in this one, every shot is perfectly framed and lit. And it feels fake. Yeah, it's so artificial, like they're back-to-back jamming like they do all the time. But the emotion that we're supposed to feel is like, look at these friends. They've been through so much together and they're still rocking out, even though in reality, they friggin' hate each other. Yeah, Mick and Keith don't talk. (laughs) And and so the the movie's a lie. The thesis of the movie is not real. I mean, this is like uh, the vitamins that boomers take like through an IV as they die, reminding them that, you know, they're still rocking out like they were when I was teenagers. Nothing has changed and everything is still great for everyone. Hey, didn't you love how in the front row, the front row is just all like 20-something girls like with their cell phones out like Marty is like okay like make sure we get some young people in the front so this looks like a thing that a young person would want to watch I mean that's a lie <laughs> it is <laughs> I mean the 
Rolling Stones still pump out an album every now and then, and it's, it's so hilariously like contractually obligated. I remember my dad showing me a music video they made in probably the early 2000s because it was shot in Ottawa. It was just Mick Jagger just walking through the streets of Ottawa. That was it. No attempt of trying anything. Just going through the motions. So, you know, if I were making a Rolling Stones documentary, which I should not do because I'm not a filmmaker. Or a fan of the Rolling Stones. Or a fan. But let's say I was. Like, I think my angle on them would be, if I wanted to do a positive angle, it would be... Like, yeah, it's great that they're still performing. They're so durable. Like, they are pros. They they are masters of their art, and they've been doing it for so long. And, like, that's impressive in its way. But they are not who they were 40 years ago. If I was to, to make a documentary, and it would be obviously a Max Rose, I mean, if I did a concert film, I would just do just close-ups of their faces so close that you can't see the chin or their hair. Mm, yes. And you just cut between those throughout the concert. And that's all it is. <laughs> yeah, and- I wouldn't I wouldn't have the shot in when they're doing Sympathy for the Devil where like like Mick emerges from the back door, back backlit with red, as if he really is a satanic figure and not like, you know, the grandpa of rock and roll. <laughs> yeah. The great grandpa of rock and roll at this point. Let's be honest. And I would make a documentary that would ask the question, why are they still doing this? And try to examine that idea. I mean, it boils down to because they know nothing else. And if they stop doing this, who are they? And it makes a lot of money. It's very lucrative. And explore that kind of angles of like, what propels somebody? Because out of all the rockers that are still rocking, the Rolling Stones are now a punchline. And it's extra funny because when they were young, they were like, we're going to do this. We're going to burn out. That's what we're built to do. And that's not what happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd be curious too about like, the business model and how the business model of it has changed. Like there was a time when they were throwing TVs out of hotel rooms and they were high out of their minds and they were going on stage doing these like absolutely scorching and incredible concerts. And then at some point, like they started hating each other personally and they all kicked drugs and they, they were all like, okay, this is a business enterprise and we give the fans what they want. And, and we do a careful Amber preserved version of start me up and uh and and i would like to know like what really goes into that like what was that evolution i feel like it'll happen after they die when suddenly the documentaries of like what happened to the rolling stones will come out as opposed to like ah they seemingly disappeared in the 80s and faded into music history which is how most biographies usually take them at least the filmed ones but if people want to explore the evolution of a rock band i do think all of these movies we mentioned is a great way to do it because you get to see the creative process. You get to see a defining moment. You also get to see just rock stars be rock stars. And then, you know, grandpa doing his shtick. It's like, what does it mean after they're just recreating stuff they've done for so long? Like how hollow is this presentation? And there's value in that giant filmography. So good on the Rolling Stones for at least participating in all this stuff. Beautifully put, Justin. Do we have any letters this we week? We do have letters. And as per usual, you can reach us at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And this letter is from Stephen Douglas. He goes, Does it count as watching a film if you do it with Riff Tracks commentary on top or the Mystery Science Theater 3000 version? Uh, in my opinion, for Mystery Science Theater, the answer is unambiguously no. 
And I'll tell you why. It's because they edited the films. That's true. Mitchell is actually half an hour longer than the version of Mitchell you see on Mystery Science Theater. So towards the end of that version, they all say something like, hey, what happened to John Saxon? Wasn't John Saxon in this movie? And it's a funny joke in that context. That is not fair. It's not fair because they cut out the scene where he gets killed. Everybody who's seen Mitchell think that the movie, they just got rid of John Saxon because they haven't seen the actual uncut version of Mitchell. Now, I think Rift Tracks... I think they do do the uncut. They do do the whole movie. Have you ever dipped your toe in a riff track or cinematic Titanic when it was coming out so many years ago? Yeah, I've seen like a decent amount of riff tracks. Um, I th- I think it's funny, you know. I-, I don't love it when they do stuff like Carnival of Souls. But, you know, if, if they're doing Laser Mission, sure, like, that's fun. And I don't I don't think, like, I think if you watch the Rift Tracks version of Laser Mission, like, it's fine. It's better than watching the real Laser Mission. You won't miss anything. I mean, anything. I'll say this. They don't talk over the dialogue. So technically, you're kind of watching the movie. I know some people will be like, oh, you need the pure experience. But you don't need to watch Laser Mission. <laughs> you really don't. So. You're wa- Like, you're watching Laser Mission with friends, right? If you watch a movie with friends, you might talk but, over like it a like you said, bit. the MST2K versions are edited. So that doesn't count as the full movie experience, even though it has become the defining one for uh, countless people our age. Did you watch any of the new stuff beyond like the first few episodes when it came out? You know, not really. And uh, that's no shade on it because it looks it looks like it was okay. I think it's just I mean, first of all, I didn't grow up with the new stuff like it doesn't have Mike it doesn't have Joel. And also like the new stuff this is entirely like a personal thing but like i kind of liked how the old stuff looked like a public access show and the movies they did were so kind of like strange and like the movies they used to do were just like whatever they could get and there seemed something a bit underground about it whereas the new show feels like a big a big netflix revival of that show which is fine like it's good it's probably it's quite possibly more consistently funny than a lot of the old joel episodes it's weird to critique it because like me i've never been a super fan of mystery science Theater 3000 but even i'm like ah the jokes are too fast it doesn't feel natural one of the big issues is supposedly the first season they didn't record it together so you feel like the kind of like uh, start and stop of the jokes. Sometimes they'll say a joke before the thing happens on screen and you're like, no, 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 it doesn't work this way because <laughs> they're trying to like stuff so much into one. episode. Yeah, yeah. And that's absolutely true. Like the earlier episodes, some of the Joel episodes may not have the best like laugh per minute ratio, but there's a chemistry. Mm, there. The mic stuff definitely, too, is you feel like it's people bouncing stuff off of each other while like uh actually there was a really funny one cry of the wild that in the early netflix one that like had me laughing to like my gut hurt but then the other ones kind of burned me so bad not burn me but like eh, it's not that funny it's kind of tiring that i just never went back to it it's odd the other thing is the old show felt a bit like the old 50s or 60s monster TV shows where like vampira or sven guli or somebody would introduce a monster movie so like it was the old show, there was a certain amount of discovery. It's like uh, you're discovering something like Manos, the Hands of Fate or the Coleman Francis movies. And and that's like a, an exciting and ex- potentially exciting thing. Whereas the new show, it was a lot of stuff like Mac and Yeah, you. I mean, they did in the early season, they did a lot of like MGM catalog titles. So there was some weird stuff. But then when you watch like they did... I think Atlantic Rim, the asylum film, it's like, there's no jokes to be made in this. This is just a miserable experience. Uh, anyway, if uh, the, the new show is fine, though. Like, whatever. Yeah, I don't want to rag on it for people that enjoy it. But I also think the big thing is that for people that grew up with it, there was nothing like it. Now you can go on the internet and you can find your community and you can interact with it, which is like completely different from when 
the original Mystery of Science Theater 3000 was airing and the teenagers were like, oh, I can finally watch movies with friends and feel like I'm interacting with them, even though that they're not actually my friends and they're people on the screen. Yeah, that's very true. Like if I were just discovering Mystery Science Theater for the first time right now at age 32, like I probably wouldn't mm. become a super fan. All right. So if you would like to send us letters, you can do so on Podcast at gmail.com. And what are we doing on our Patreon this week, Will? We have a favorite topic on this podcast, a topic that we return to more than anything else a topic that unites justin and me in in complicated feelings in feelings of passionate love and hate the man's name is jackie chan we saw his new film vanguard and we talk about it for a whole episode you can basically be guaranteed if jackie has a new movie me and will will see it we will dedicate an episode of the patreon to it (laughs) check it out five dollars a month in uh, patreon.com slash the important cinema club and next week we're going to the french new wave we're going to be talking about writer director luc moulet and you may hear that name and go who? Luc Moulet is, I guess, one of the lesser known members of the French New Wave. He was a Cahiers critic, I think, just a little bit after Godard and Truffaut's heyday, maybe, but close to he it. He was actually uh, almost basically when their movies were coming out, because when Truffaut was writing for Cahiers, Luc Moulet was writing for it as well. So he is like at the same time as them, but he never had a film that ever hit like theirs did. But he is a very playful filmmaker. He is a very cine literate filmmaker. Uh, he makes movies that, you know, are a delight for cinephiles. I have always wanted to do a deep dive into him, but have never really uh, gotten around to it. Justin, I know you've done a little more research into him. So what movies should we watch? So you should watch, uh, I think it's called A Girl is a Gun, which is his take on the Western. And what's amazing about that is that his preferred version and is the most commonly available version is dubbed in English. And it stars Jean-Pierre Léo, who in the English dub has a voice like this when he talks, which is like just funny on his face. And watch, I think it's the last film that he made. The plot is Luc Moulet, while mountain climbing, which is one of his great passions, finds a dead body and decides to pretend that the dead body is him because he wants to see how uh, the world and the media will react to uh, Luc Moulet, the director, dying. Unfortunately, when he does this, Jean-Luc Godard dies and he realizes, oh no, if they find my body, I will be completely forgotten and a footnote. And that's basically the plot to the movie. That's so funny. Which <laughs> is so funny. Um, I would probably recommend a third one. I'm gonna have to go through the list because there's like Brigitte and Brigitte, which is his first movie, which is really weird because it's mostly all shot in front of like a white screen. He also has The Smugglers. What's really interesting about Luc Moulet is that he's essentially the Edgar G. Ulmer of the French New Wave. Not only because he loved Edgar G. Ulmer, but he worked with the least money than any of them. So uh, that's another reason to explore his filmography. Also that he's been completely forgotten. So that's what we'll be doing next week. And until then, my name's Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Hello, Justin here. Just want to thank our new Patreon subscribers, as I usually do every week. They include Michael Chechi, Quinn Henderson, and James Morgan Wells. Thank you so much for becoming Patreon subscribers. We could not do it without you. And I just want to give an advance warning to anyone who checked out or is sad that they missed out on my 24-hour horror movie mind melter. I will be doing a holiday-themed horror movie mind melter marathon online. It's going to be December 12th, probably starting at noon. 
I will have more information in the near future, but for now, just clear your calendars. It is a Saturday. We now return you to your regular scheduled programming. I was excited to discover on YouTube this week that a movie that I saw as a child that has never been released on DVD, I had it on VHS, just up there, you know, on YouTube, and the movie is called Stooge Mania. (laughs) I saw you reviewed this. You've spoken of it before. In case listeners have forgotten... It is the only film directed by Chuck Workman, who is the guy who does the clip montages at the Academy Awards. And it's the only film to star Josh Mostel, who's Zero Mostel's son. And he, he, was, he played Herod in Jesus Christ Superstar. He plays a man named Howard F. Howard, who is, has been driven insane by his love of the Three Stooges. And he's not alone. Uh, the world in this movie is full of people who have been driven mad, like alcoholism, basically, being obsessed with the Three Stooges. And they all get um, forced to attend this asylum called Stooge Hills, where they are to be rehabilitated into society <laughs> and kicked of their addiction. I mean, this is a big setup. It's mostly an excuse to show the public domain Three Stooges clips, right? Yeah, like at least a third of the movie, maybe half the movie, is clips from the four public domain Three Stooges shorts. I am shorts. shocked there is so little of the public domain Three Stooges shorts. So this is a real movie kind of surrounding all this stuff. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It's like just a normal 80s comedy. And, and so like stuff will happen like uh, Josh Mostel will have a hallucination where he hallucinates a scene or like he'll be walking along the street and he'll see like a TV in the store window that's showing some Three Stooges and he stops and looks at it and the camera just looks at the TV for a while. Chuck Workman only has these four shorts to work off of, okay? Three of them have Shemp in them. One of them has Curly. He is going for like every bit of meat on the bone of these. So like Every gag, it's actually impressive in a way. How many times do you hear lovebirds? Well, there's a whole comic set piece where like Howard F. Howard is trying to get married. Mm. He's getting married in a room that's been made up to look exactly like the room from that short. And it keeps cutting back and forth between like uh, Shemp accidentally dropping the ring in the piano and getting tangled up in the piano wires and then like the new actors doing a similar bit with the piano wires and just as funny right (laughs) just as funny well like the movie makes the classic mistake of of like the three stooges are funny i think because like they take everything very seriously oh and i'm guessing this version everyone's mugging it up to the high hills exactly but anyway i was so excited to see it on on youtube it's an amazing world we live in where just cultural detritus pops up everywhere you know you've directed me to youtube channels in the past where people just upload like 150 like vhs movies from the 90s like you can find like brain smash or a love story or something like that just nobody's monitoring the copyright of it i think what's advantageous about it is that you look at how many people watch these movies and it is mind-boggling like there are so many martial arts films on youtube and you look at it has like two million five million views of some like little no-name martial arts picture in the comments like they're not bots or people being like oh yeah this movie's great so much fun like that's wild to me i love how whenever you look up like a bowery boys movie you always see the comments they're like ah comedy used to be good this is clean (laughs) comedy not like the dirty comedy of today well 
Imagine that joke. You can look at any old musty song and someone's like, ah, they used to know how to rock back then. <laughs> oh, God. If you look up like Al Jolson in blackface. Oh, no. It's fascinating because the comments underneath, they're not even like white power, you know, KKK forever stuff like that. It's more like people like, ah, world's greatest entertainer. The kids today just don't have class like this guy. And it's like footage of like 40 guys in blackface singing Camptown Races. <laughs> oh, God. That's awful. You know, but I do want to get off the subject of just YouTube because you talking about Stooge Mania made me think of all those movies that try to kind of craft a comedy experience around the idea of famous comedians. I'm thinking of like brain donors. You ever see that movie? No, uh, but I would love to. That was, was it Pat Proft who directed that? I believe it was Pat Proft. And just the bravery or ignorance of someone going, you know what people like the Marx Brothers? Let's try to recreate the Marx Brothers. Fills me uh, to no end with uh, happiness. I mean, it was like John Turturro and a couple of other guys doing a Marx Brothers style comedy. I mean, you and I are big fans of the Fairly Brothers Three Stooges movie. Oh, that is a great movie. Yes, it is. It can be done. But I think that it probably is bad. Well, I think that there's a Brain Donors episode of Patreon coming soon at the Important Cinema Club. You know, my prediction right now, you're going to give it three stars. Oof. Uh, I think that's a very generous prediction, but we'll see. All right, we'll see. Yep.